Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Life Together. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 7th, 2017. Now that I'm 61 years old, I can no longer avoid the R word, that is, retirement. When I think about the conversations among friends and neighbors who are my age, I hear us all asking a similar set of questions about the how, when, where, and even the why of retiring. The answer to these questions depend in large part on how much money I have. In other words, my financial equity. But my good friends and neighbors, the Steins, have reframed these questions for me. Heidi is a social worker who serves the elderly sick in their homes, so she sees the consequences of social isolation. Art is a chief financial officer, so he knows the importance of financial equity. But what really interests Art and Heidi is not money, but community. In other words, not your financial equity, but your social equity. Prioritizing community has led Art and Heidi to consider the co-housing option. The co-housing movement started in Denmark in the late 1960s. Today, it's an international movement. In the United States, there are about 160 co-housing communities in 25 states. Co-housing participants commit themselves to live intentionally in community. Families live in private housing, but they share public spaces, responsibilities, meals, resources, activities, and events. Shared care for children and the elderly is often part of the mix. Neighbors collaborate to plan and manage their communities. Decisions often require consensus. Co-housing is only one response to the lack of social equity that the political scientist Robert Putnam of Harvard documented in his book back in the year 2000. It's called Bowling Alone, the Collapse and Revival of American Community. Putnam showed how many people today feel disconnected and isolated. We've accumulated what he called a growing social capital deficit that leaves people in our culture longing for a more collectively caring community. A connected community of intentional caring and sharing is exactly what Luke describes in this week's Gospel. Luke writes, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Later, Luke describes how no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. It was then distributed to anyone as he had need. Barnabas, for example, sold his land and contributed the proceeds to the community. A few pages later, Luke describes financial assistance for widows, including, by the way, complaints about how the program was administered. And a few pages after that, we read about famine relief efforts. A couple generations after Luke, writing from Rome, the theologian Justin Martyr summarized the appeal of Christian community. He says, We who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. And down in North Africa, Tertullian similarly wrote about the well-known and well-deserved reputation of believers for social generosity that built bridges of community rather than walls of separation. He says, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. Down through the centuries, Christians have found, have found many different and creative ways to live lives of social generosity and caring community. This past January, Kate Hennessy, the youngest of Dorothy Day's nine grandchildren, published a new biography of the woman that many believe will one day be canonized as a saint. The book is called Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. 2017. <clears throat> Along with Peter Morin, Dorothy Day founded the Catholic Worker Movement in 1980, 1933. It espouses a strong belief in the God-given dignity of every human being. Today, over 185 Catholic worker communities remain committed to nonviolence, voluntary poverty, prayer, and hospitality for the homeless, exiled, hungry, and forsaken. Catholic workers protest injustice, war, racism, and violence of all forms. Living the Christian life in social isolation, disconnected from others, is a contradiction in terms. Maya Angelou had it right in her poem called Alone. Lying, thinking last night how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread and loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing, and I don't believe I'm wrong, that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody 
but nobody can make it out here alone. In the Gospel of John 10.10 for this week, Jesus says that he came to give us abundant life. That abundant life, with its surplus of social equity, is only possible as life together. As Dorothy Day once said, we have all known the long loneliness, and we have found the answer is community. For Vokes this week, I review a new biography of Steven Spielberg. The author is Molly Haskell. The title, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2017. This book is 224 pages long. This short biography is one of the titles in Yale University Press's Jewish Lives series of biographies of Jewish figures in literature, religion, philosophy, politics, culture, economics, art, and the sciences. About 30 titles are already published, with about the same number still forthcoming. For those who don't have the inclination to read the 640-page biography by Joseph McBride, the film critic Molly Haskell has written an appreciative but not uncritical biography of one of the greatest filmmakers ever. Steven Spielberg turned 70 in December of 2016. And so, after 50 years of making movies, it's become easier to consider his staggering output in a more nuanced light. For decades, Spielberg has been an easy target for film snobs. He has epitomized the corporate commercial mogul who has made fluff movies for mass appeal, a fact he has acknowledged with what Haskell calls disarming candor, when he was only 20, he told a student reporter, I don't want to make films like Fellini. I don't want just the elite. I want everybody to enjoy the films. No one has been more successful at making movies as financial joggernauts. The 1982 movie E.T., for example, had 200 official product tie-ins and Spielberg was making a reported $500,000 a day on his share of the profits. A ruthless negotiator, despite his carefully crafted regular guy persona, today Spielberg has a net worth of $3.7 billion. Other critics like Pauline Kael complain that Spielberg's movies weren't about anything. The absence of any deeper meaning, the misogynist caricatures of women, the regression into adolescence, the gratuitous violence, was this not a corrosive dumbing down of cultural taste? Was he not an artistic lightweight? There's truth in these criticisms, says Molly Haskell, but in fact they are tempered by his later works like Schindler's List, after which she says, all bets were off. Spielberg never gives interviews to biographers, and so Haskell is left to interpret his life by reviewing his movies. This makes for choppy reading, 
18 chapters in 200 pages, with a few pages given to film after film. Still, this isn't all bad, because Spielberg himself has said that everything about me is in my films. And what a life for a poor student who never finished college, much less went to film school. Love him or hate him, Steven Spielberg is what Jeffrey O'Brien called something of an anthology of superlatives, a walking Lifetime Achievement Award. The author, Molly Haskell. The title, Steven Spielberg, A Life in Films, new this year, 2017. For movies this week, I review Denial from the year 2016. <clears throat> this won't be the best movie you see this year, technically speaking, but with the Trump administration complaining about fake news and boasting about alternate facts, it might be the most important movie you see. That's because it deals with denialism the rejection of empirical and verifiable evidence that is otherwise uncontested and well supported by a critical consensus. There are many forms of denialism in our culture. Many Christians deny our best science about evolution and the age of the earth. ExxonMobil contributed to pseudoscientific groups that claim that the science of climate change is inconclusive. There are deniers of the moon landing vaccinations, and the safety of genetically modified foods. This historical dramatic film by director Mick Jackson brings to life the story of the Emory University historian Deborah Lipstadt in her book, History on Trial, My Day in Court with a Holocaust Denier, 2005. It's about how she was sued for libel by the Holocaust denier David Irving. The lesson here is clear and disturbing, that we should take very seriously even the most outlandish incidences of denialism. The title of the film, Denial. And for poetry this week, one of my favorite poets, Edwina Gately, this week we've posted one of her poems, Called to Become. It's from her book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. You were called to become a perfect creation. No one is called to become who you are called to be. It does not matter how short or tall or thick-set or slow you may be. It does not matter whether you sparkle with life or as silent as a still pool. Whether you sing your song aloud or weep alone in darkness. It does not matter whether you feel loved and admired or unloved and alone. For you are called to become a perfect creation. No one's shadow should cloud your becoming. No one's light should dispel your spark. For the Lord delights in you jealously looks upon you and encourages with gentle joy every movement of the spirit within you. Unique and loved you stand, 
beautiful or stunted in your growth, but never without hope in life. For you were called to become a perfect creation. This becoming may be gentle or harsh, subtle or violent, but it never ceases, never pauses or hesitates, only is creative force calling you, calling you to become a perfect creation. Edwina Gately, called to become. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for Sunday, May the 7th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.